Hello, and welcome to another episode of Book Faces Live, the show where we talk to the faces behind your books. I'm Nathan Van Coops. I'm your host. Uh, welcome back to another episode. Uh, if you were listening last week, I apologize. We did have a couple of sound issues last week with um, Alessandra's episode. I think we had a little bit of internet, internet connection. So if you braved the robotic voices at the end of the episode, um, God bless you, and you know, thank you for coming back. Um, this show is not known for its audio quality, but it is known for the quality of its guests, which I'm um, you know excited to have back another fantastic author uh, interview this, this evening, and that's Joe Lallow, who is the author of over 30 novels uh, across a variety of genres. And he is also the uh, co-host of the Six Figure Author Podcast, one of my weekly must-listen podcasts. Welcome to the show, Joe. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. I have been a fan of your podcasts for, since back when it was the Science Fiction and Fantasy Marketing Podcast. And um, you know, I've listened. I, so I feel like I've had you in my ears every week for years and years now. So... Um, I think I, I missed. I just I'm somehow missed talking to you at Nink. You were at Nink a couple of years ago, right? I was, yeah, at Nink. Not obviously not in the COVID year. The previous year yeah. I was at Nink. It was the only one I've been to. Okay, I somehow missed connecting with you there. I don't know what was going on. I was wandering around, you know, my head in the clouds apparently, and missed missed saying hi. I ran across Lindsay. I knew Lindsay was there too. Um, but yeah, you guys have such a great show, and it's it's full of information. So if anyone is not already listening to the Six Figure Author Podcast and you're a writer or an aspiring writer, definitely go check it out. Um, but you're also a writer of a variety of different genres. I mean, you write fantasy, you write sci-fi, um, you write steampunk. I've read, uh, I read your book Free Wrench back when I was just getting started trying to write a steampunk book. You were one of my model go-to um, authors. Well, neat. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, you've been inspiring me for 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 a lot of years. So um, tell people a little bit about what you're you're doing now. What's your latest release? I've got uh, the, the cover up on the on the screen here for us. So the most recent release was Nova Igniter, which is the sixth book in my sci-fi series, which is called Big Sigma, and uh, it's part of the lie. I I called 2020 the year of six. Uh, because I have three series, and each of them had, at the beginning of the year, five books, and I decided to close all of them out with a sixth book in 2020, and Nova Igniter was the third of, of those of those books. So I successfully closed out my main series in 2020, and Nova Igniter was, like, it, it particularly... Most of my series um, tend to be pretty cinematic in their spectacle, and mm -hmm. uh, but Big Sigma more so than any of them. So... Uh, I had to escalate the story to uh, an absurd level in order for it to be a suitable climax to the series. <laughs> so, especially because in the previous book, there's a, a point where a character uh, is on the other end of a call and is distracted, and is uh, is like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to distract you with what's going on right now because it would it would concern you. And he's like, I've been through a lot. Uh, I'm pretty <laughs> sure I can deal with it. And he's like, I am confident that you cannot possibly imagine what's going on right now. And that was like, I threw my hat over the fence. Like, I have to have that happen in the next book. And I got to come yeah. what it is. So yeah. I think I did a pretty good job. The, the, the readers seemed to like it. It was tricky. And it's it's space opera. Uh, how do you describe the genre? It's, it's got a lot going on. You know, I call it space opera. But it's one of those where, like, I couldn't really find the right, the right, perfect subgenre for it because space opera usually implies like you know, nation, galactic empires clashing, and, and like uh, it's weird because it's sci-fi, but it's more like Blade Runner in that like we don't have any aliens, mm -hmm. um, but we are 
sky hopping. You know, we're going from planet to planet like nobody's business. So the first one was almost film noir. The first one was very, there was like a, you know, a femme fatale and there's the mob. The mob shows up. And, yeah. But uh, it's mostly, I guess, sci-fi action adventure. I've had people, very many people uh, early on compare it to uh, something called the, the Stainless Steel Rat. Hmm. Which was uh, uh, it's a a lighthearted sci-fi sort of adventure type thing. And apparently, I I match the tone on that. I've never read it. I should read it now that I think about it, just to see if they're right. Yeah, sometimes it's hard to find the the comp books yeah. until you've written it already, and then someone tells you, "Oh yeah, by the way, it's like this." I'm like, oh okay. I have learned so much stuff about my own books just by interviewing my readers. Yeah. Because <laughs> I just didn't know that you know they're better read than I am. Yeah. When I was working on my um, steampunk book, and I was trying to, I had this whole world where the, the sky is full of living things like the ocean, and um, there's creatures and stuff fly, flying around up there. And, you know, I hadn't ever read a book like that. And I thought, Michael, well, I'm just going to write it and I'm going to go for it. And then, um, you know, one of my readers said, Oh, yeah, by the way, it looks, it's kind of like the, the Wind Whales of Ishmael. It's from back in the 70s. I'm like, Oh, okay. Like, it's like, and it's there's there are no new ideas, or they're all like you know somebody has yeah. had this idea in some form or another. Granted, that one was like a, a sci-fi sequel to Moby Dick, so it's not exactly what I was writing at all. Right. But the concept, the general high concept stuff, was there. Yeah, uh, they say there's only like five ideas, and the ancient Greeks wrote all of them. So yeah. like we're all just mix, you know, remixing all of their stuff. Yeah, sometimes I talk to to new authors who are just super precious about their idea, and they don't want to like tell anyone about it because they're worried someone's going like, to steal their idea. I'm like, if someone took that idea, it would be an entirely different book than what you're going to yeah. write. So don't worry about it. I think it's Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman's like, I can't write a better book than anyone else, but no one can write a better Neil Gaiman book than I can write. You know, mm. It's going to be yours. My brother was an aspiring... Well, my brother was not an aspiring writer. My brother would like to be an aspiring writer. <laughs> he hasn't gotten to the aspiring part yet. And he had a lot of ideas, and then he like watched whatever, Memento or whatever, and he's like, ah, oh, that's close to my idea, now I can't do it. I'm like, Mike, right, yeah. I wrote a sword and sorcery novel. Like, they're all close to Lord of the Rings. I yeah. don't, you just, just write it. Yeah. And I, I have friends that are that way, too. They were watching everything like a hawk, every trailer that comes out, and they're like, oh, no, it's too similar to what I'm doing. It's like, that's actually a good thing, because now you have something to compare it to. It's like, if people who like this want something else, hey, here's your book. And You've suddenly retroactively written to market. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things, you, starting out, you don't really understand. Uh, you don't want to be that unique. You want to be unique, memorable, of course, but not, not completely people abstract. People got to find you. Yeah, and you're you're no stranger to abstract. I know you've got a, a Structophus Pizza Dragon book, which is like as as unique I think as you can come up with. <laughs> yeah, that's that's like notorious. Like <laughs> it's always got to get brought up, or it's like again, I just use the term right to market, which is you know a yeah. byword for people who want to actually have a successful author career. You got to yeah. you know find a market to write to, and it's like, yeah. Oh yeah, I wrote a story about a, a dragon who is half pizza oven. And, uh, <laughs> I don't even know how the heck. Like, is it, I guess it's sci-fi. I think I have it classified. Maybe as it's fantasy. It's heck isn't, know. You know, literal, uh, literary fiction. Yeah. But okay. yeah, that was that was one of those where a friend of mine who is an artist had a had the pizza dragon species called Structophus gastrignae. And I had lots of pictures and like lore about it. And I was like, yeah, this is really cool lore. I like that. Yeah. And I wrote, it was their birthday and I wrote a chapter. 
Okay. And I was like, here, I wrote a chapter. And he's like, whoa, this is the most amazing thing ever. So I wrote another chapter. And then I was, you know, kind of one-sixth right? of the way to a book. So I'm like, I'll <laughs> finish the book. And then when the book is finished, I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not, not going to sell it. Yeah. It right. made its money back. But, oh, good. <laughs> but that's not exactly a, it's not exactly a, a, a money maker. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a very niche Niche genre, yeah. <laughs> but for sure. where where pizza and dragons combine, it's just the Venn diagrams really a sliver there where it kind of people people like both of those things, but they never really want to combine them. <laughs> um, they try though. There's a uh, there's a kids book called Dragons Love Tacos. Oh, terrible, close. terrible book though. It's, oh, not, is it? actually, it's a New York Times bestseller. I think it sold a bazillion copies. But from from the standpoint of a, of a dad trying to read that to the, to their kid, it's it, the the story is all over the map. <laughs> but um, it's tough tough genre is all I'm saying. You're not okay. you're not the only one struggling with food. And it dragons. is not it is not a mature genre yet. It's, <laughs> it still has some work to do. Do you feel like now that you've completed okay you've completed six series this year? Do you feel like it's the end of an era for you? Because you've been writing these since 2010. Yeah, the Book of Deacon I, uh, I released in 2010, and uh, I wrote I, January of this year. When is January? Earlier this year, I released the, uh, the the sixth book of that. And that, by the way, is the sixth main book. There are other books in that series that aren't numbered. Yeah. Uh, and it does feel a little weird. That, like these have been my money makers, and it's not like they're going away. Like right. they're still a long tail. They're still going to be available for sale. I'll still talk about them. But uh, it it is uncomfortable. It's like I'm. 10 years it's it's like it's 10 years ago and mm-hmm. i suddenly don't have an established thing and i'm, I'm trying out a new thing mm-hmm. i don't have the promise of releasing the next book in the big sigma if i release you know uh it doesn't do well so uh it's it's unnerving but it's also nice because the further you get into us into a series the more difficult it is to write something new like first mm-hmm. off everything you've done stuff already so you right. sort of have to not step on your own toes yeah and second uh you're pulling around all of that continuity and you can you can mess up you can have characters contradict stuff earlier so you have to really be careful and trust me fans notice Mm -hmm. so uh it feels nice to sort of not have the past uh you know the the past has not been set it's all just you know in a note right now that i have have you know only i know about the future's not set because i'm making all that decision yeah uh so it's nice it's easier and it's more fun but it's also harder because i'm the new book is epic fantasy and I, Book of Deacon, my most popular stuff, is epic fantasy. So I have to write something in the same genre that isn't the previous thing. Mm-hmm. And I, like, it, it, the planning phase was almost a week and a half longer than it usually is because I had to sort of make a list of tropes that I was okay with repeating and stuff that I mm-hmm. wasn't okay with repeating. Yeah. What are some of the things that are different now? So it's, it's like 10 years ago, but you've written three series at this point. You're starting a new fantasy series, which is like what you did before. Um, but now that you know what it's like to write a six-book series, how does that affect your idea forming and your pre-writing going into this one? Like, what's different now? Now that you know what you're getting into, well, there's a couple things that are like if I was to compare directly the the thing I'm writing now with when I was writing Book of Deacon. Um, first off, I didn't outline the Book of Deacon. I I pantsed all the way through, and that's why. The first three books were actually one book that I broke into three because mm. the one book was a half a million words. I, I edited out 50,000 of them and then broke it into 350,000 word books. Uh, so, And also, like I, I released it in 2010. I didn't write it in 2010. I right. wrote it over the course of, I think I started, I came up with the ideas when I was like 12. 
Yeah. So uh, I, I outline now, and it gives me an idea. Number one, it makes the writing process way faster. Uh, I just I know what I'll be writing today because I've got a little thumbnail of the scene I, that I came up with weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I outline art. Like I, I I don't just have the idea for this book. I have the trajectory I want the series to go, and I will usually outline up to three. Well, not outline three full books, but like here's what's going to be happening in this book, but here are the elements that are going to be carried forward to a larger story. So it really helps to make the series feel like a series from the start, as opposed to like Big Sigma, I didn't write with the intention of it being a series. The first Big Sigma book is uh, uh, Bypass Gemini. I wrote that as a standalone. People liked it, so I wrote a sequel. So I had to sort of retroactively create threads, like a character who wasn't supposed to have anything to do now had to be very important two books later and i had to sort of make it look like i did it on purpose yeah uh, so i can i'm just better at uh, planning now and and that's that's a big thing and i also sort of understand the entire pipeline now i didn't the first book i didn't edit i released it unedited mm. <laughs> it, it, it has not a good idea i made my own cover at first so obviously so now i'm going to have it at the edit date for the first three books in this series are already lined up just basically stretching all the way to the end of the year uh i know how long it will take and who i'm going to get when the time comes to get a cover so i just have a better idea of all the steps involved mm-hmm. and uh, i also know um when i do release it i'm just gonna have a firmer footing because i know what a good blurb looks like like well not <laughs> i'm not great at blurbs but I, I know what one looks like. I know what a bad one looks like. I know how to avoid mm-hmm. those. So just overall, I, I'm able to streamline a lot better. Uh, and, 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 you know, I'm able to make a checklist that I can follow. And if you know me in real life, you know that I sort of have to motivate myself by checking things off a list. So now that I'm good at making the list, I'm good at making the product. How is that going? Because I've heard you talk on the, on the podcast about making this sort of master list of, like, how I publish a book. Have you completed that? Um, I have done five chapters of a thing I've been sharing with the Patreon, hmm. uh, which it takes it straight up to the actual writing of the book. And I have uh, probably another five chapters worth of, you know, formatting the book, getting it beta read, and then eventually releasing it. But those are, number one, it's the, it's the Patreon level version of it. And it's not of a book, it's of a short story, which, spoiler alert, didn't stay short. <laughs> Uh, so there was a bonus chapter where I teach you how to split a short story so that it stays short, and, and now you have two parts. Yeah. But uh, it's going okay. The problem is um, I can't work on anything that requires narration during the day because there's a three-year-old upstairs, hmm. and so I have to wait until he goes to bed. And that was fine for the first five chapters, but my brother just went back to work, and he would be coming back home right in the middle of what would be my recording session. Yeah. So scheduling has become a little bit tricky. Yeah. So I'll eventually get back to it, and I enjoy it. And uh, apparently, people have been getting a lot of use out of it. But the other thing that was weird, by the way, is I was releasing the chapters as I was writing the book, so people in my Patreon knew what the book was about, mm-hmm. which was throwing me off because I forgot about that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right. Well, you're not going to be surprised since you saw the outline. Yeah, that is a different way to to put things out there. But I mean. I think it's really cool that you're doing that for your Patreon subscribers and they get to kind of see behind the curtain a little bit of, you know, how you, how you make these books happen. 
Um, yeah. The inmates run the asylum a little bit with me. Like when people ask for stuff, I desperately try to provide it. Even when a lot of the books that I released were released because somebody said, "Oh, I'll read that," and I'm sure they did, but mm-hmm. not a lot of other people did. So, how did that affect your show? So you're starting a new series. You've got this new epic fantasy, um, which is obviously a genre you've written in before. Anything different about the way you're going to approach the market side of it? Um, yeah, I mean, I uh, basically what I've been doing with this one, like I said earlier, uh, I sort of had a list of the tropes that I followed, and I was pretty close to market with the first, with the first, uh, with the Book of Deacon, because let's face it, I was essentially. Uh, it started off as me trying to duplicate the story of a of a an RPG called Dragon Warrior, which doesn't have the deepest story. Yeah. So um, I I had a, a pretty mainstream idea for it already. This one, I I don't know that I'm making any decisions or specifically catering it to market because again I I feel like the one genre that I can hit the market pretty pretty easily is epic fantasy. I'm trying. I keep on going back and having to adjust scope because mm. like I did with the. Um, like I did with the, the sci-fi, I ended up writing a sci-fi with no aliens in it. And aliens are really a staple of sci-fi. So, um, like, I'm writing this epic fantasy, and because the previous epic fantasy was loaded with fantasy creatures, and I, I was like, well, I don't want to have a character like that. Well, I don't want to repeat that character. I found myself putting together something that didn't have a lot of fantasy creatures. And I'm like, mm, that this is epic fantasy. I have to definitely have, like, dragons and, and harpies and hidden yeah. riffs. Yeah. So I had to sort of go back and restructure for that. And then I had I realized again, epic, epic is basically, you know, the scope of the story. It's also the length of the story. Mm-hmm. But uh I, I like so I had initially thought, well, I want this to stay with smaller stakes, but I realized immediately it won't be epic fantasy if I keep with smaller stakes. So I have right. to at the very least imply a bigger plot. Like there will be a bigger plot, you know, book yeah. two, book three. But I need to do a a good job foreshadowing that or people who read this expecting you know save the day protect the world are going to be like well why did he just bail out so and so and pay back such and such so those were things i had to sort of keep in mind when, when i'm when i've got the market in my head do you feel like epic fantasy takes a lot more thought going in because you have to also create a backstory i feel like epic fantasy readers expect there to be a deep history to the world and you know storied legends and things that happened even before the you know page one yeah in both cases in both cases i sort of uh i I, book of deacon in this new series which i don't really have a name for yet i actually asked a question about it on on uh on twitter recently and it seems like the greater lands is gonna work except that's Hmm. already a name of something so it'll probably be the greater land saga uh yeah you definitely need like a bigger world and you need hints at 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 uh that you're a small part of a very big thing. That's another part, I think, of, again, the scope of epic fantasy is just about the size of everything. So this, for sure, this book has got even more sort of, this is the second era of a world that had a prior era sort of situation going. Which is funny, because the the Book of Deacon, when I wrote it, uh, I when I was du- duplicating the story of an of a, of a RPG, uh, it's all, these are the descendants of so-and-so. So that is an example of some, you know, the older the history of a world and when i actually wrote the the started to write the book i was again like 12 and i was like well who are the descendants so i started writing about the descend the 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 ancestors that is and i realized by the time i started writing the ancestors i was like five years older and better at writing and the story was better the book of deacon is technically the backstory of a book that i never ended up writing oh that's really interesting yeah that's huh that would be like, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien never wrote 
the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, he just went wrote the Cimmerillion or something yeah, like it's, that. Just release yeah. that. Yeah. Other stuff happens later. Yeah, uh, we never got that. Time. Yeah, that's funny. Um, yeah, I think that's that's it's a cool genre. I've never ventured into the epic fantasy uh, realm, but it's. It, I feel like. How, do you feel like the, the market is just sort of permanent there, where there's always going to be epic fantasy readers? I think there are a handful of types of books that people are always looking to read. And like thrillers will always have an audience. Romance mm-hmm. books will always have an audience. And obviously that, those are broad, overarching mm-hmm. genres that have yeah. subgenres. But I think that epic fantasy is sort of a permanent thing. It's sort of elemental in 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 its nature. Like yeah. it's, it's one of the most basic genres in my head. And therefore other things will derive from it, but they all sort of have that same DNA. So the kind of person yeah. who's going to read uh, Lord of the Rings is going to read... Um, you know, Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. and even the Chronicles of Narnia, like, they mm-hmm. all have the same sort of lineage. Yeah. And uh, so when you can hit your... You, when you hit something that fundamental, I think it's always going to have an audience. Whereas a lot of the, like, young adult stuff, like, um, dystopian comes and goes. Mm-hmm. It's popular sometimes, other times it's not. And then you have hyper-specific things, like, like when they start adding zombies to stuff. Right. Uh, and I think that's very, very trendy and fatty and it might come and go but pride and prejudice I, I think and zombies yeah. very very basic it's going to uh yeah, <laughs> pride and prejudice and zombies yeah um i think when you get very very basic you, you're, you're going to have some base audience that's always there mm-hmm. especially epic fantasy because lots of people they only read one book a year so they want it to be a doorstop so they, mm-hmm. they go to the genre that's going to deliver that you you've got obviously a variety of you know different genres under your belt with you know the steampunk series and um, you know, your, your your space opera series, is there a core thing that's in everything? Is there a sort of like when people say, "Okay, I pick up a Joe Lalo book," like I can expect at minimum I'm going to get this out of it. Have you thought through that yourself? Uh, yeah, I've I've learned uh, I've learned mostly out of self consciousness that I tend to have a couple of go to things. I will almost always have an ensemble cast. Very seldom, mm. I think maybe. Early on in Big Sigma, it was it was not the case. But by the end of Big Sigma, I had you know a whole cast of characters that were the sort of the, the the main the main band. I will usually have a cast of four or five people. Um, there's usually a found family sort of thing going, no matter what. Uh, this is a group of people who had a, a, a hole in the shape of the other person. Mm. There's usually going to be uh, a uh, banter like I, I work i try to work good with with pairing off characters and to have sort of fun exchange dialogue so i've been told my character building like that is good and there's almost always a cute side a psychic character it, it happens uh, on purpose or not on purpose and i actually did it on purpose for, for the last couple of books and there's been an escalating arms race with my with my it's like a, a game of chicken with my readers where i'm making the cute sidekick character increasingly ugly as the series <laughs> people still love them huh like somewhere up here not really visible because it's going to be small uh, one of the cute sidekick characters is a snake with the head of a jackal and spider legs and people were like oh like how are you saying oh because it like pats on the head yeah so yeah that's always in there that's really cool who's been what's been the most difficult character for you to write um that's a good question I find when I write characters 
Like, I have a hard time with villains. My villains, often there isn't a villain. There's a several of my books where the situation is, like, it's just somebody overcoming a difficult situation. Mm. I have a really hard time making villains that are anything more than, like, must, mustache twirling, like, the person playing the role of the villain. Mm-hmm. I have one or two villains that people can generally, genuinely feel are sinister, but I develop uh, an empathy for my characters. So yeah. I don't want bad things happening to them. Yeah. So... I, I end up trying to soften a lot of the stuff like that. So anytime I have to write a villain who's got like, uh, I, I want my villain to be the kind of person that we all agree we hate. So if I had to have a villain, and I think the most interesting villains are the ones who sort of have a point, you know, like, mm-hmm. ooh, you, you, you are definitely the hero of your story. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I think those are the best villains. I don't really write those. I write mm-hmm. somebody who's like, well, I know I'm a bad guy. Yeah. But, you know. Like I got gangsters who are bad guys. I got there's always the megalomaniacs. Yeah. So I would like to write better villains, and I, I think I think that's the only type of characters I've really included frequently that I have a hard time with. Have you watched Incredibles two? I have watched Incredibles. 2. That villain was a good example of like everything that came out of her mouth. You're like, yeah, that makes sense. That makes Super sense. Super reasonable. Yep, yeah. I see your point there. <laughs> it was just like the whole way through. Like, is this the bad guy? Are we the bad guy? <laughs> exactly. It's like, you know, yeah, we're not, we're not, we're rooting for somebody who really is, uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, but she's changing people's minds. That's no yeah. good. You know, it's one of those where it's like. I was reading an article recently about. Um, the original Blade Runner, which has not held up well um, in terms of, you know, the the love scenes. It it's, gets real rapey in there. Now, you know, 30 years later, or 40 years later, you're trying to watch it. But... Um, that sort of thing comes up with genre fiction a lot. Yeah, in the 80s, there was a lot of uh, problems with that movie. In that particular it was an amazing movie in that it, it was genre-defining... Um, and I love the second one. The second one, for me, I think is a almost nearly flawless film. But the um, thing that I think was interesting was in the, about this article was talking about how the bad guy in that, you could make him the good guy. Because he, yeah. he, he makes the most moral choices. He's trying to save his friends and not die. And he's trying to like you know find the joy in living. And compare that to Harrison Ford's character, who is just out to kill this guy, <laughs> and, yeah. and be terrible, kind of be, you know, he's just. Um, and when you flip it around and just reverse the film and and who's the hero, who's the villain, it completely works. And I'm like, oh, that's really fascinating to be able to do that with a story. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I I struggle with that too. I struggle. I have I'm writing a um, more of a PI detective series right now, and my main character is a little bit more of an anti-hero than I'm used to writing and I have this tendency to want to soften the edges and I have to resharpen them all the time and be like nope 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 stop being so nice Nathan like let him just say the mean thing yeah let him yeah and it's tough it's tough to like force yourself to write you know unlikable people um or just you know rough around the edges people even in my case so yeah um, but yeah, I'm always curious to hear that from, from writers because I mean, I, I know some of your protagonists, obviously free wrenching, are you know female characters. Do you feel like how do you feel about writing um, female leads from a male perspective? Have you has that been a challenge? Uh, you know, it hasn't been. I, I, I again, it's uh, we'll, we'll, every one of the female leads I've had, and at this point, most of my books have got you know at least a female second lead. 
uh, it happened for a different reason. And like, so again, Book of Deacon was technically the backstory to something I didn't end up writing. So the, mm-hmm. the thing I was going to write had four male characters and one female character. So I'll, I'll make the ancestors four female characters and one male character. And then that's how those, you know, Miranda became the, the, the star. Uh, and I didn't know any better. I was just writing a character I thought would be interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think if you do that, uh, unless you're making like, I don't know, potentially absurd, incorrect anatomical statements, I think as long as your character, I think a lot of us really are the same. And mm-hmm. People have the same motivations. So mm-hmm. I think you can write a, a character, uh, unless you're getting really down to, br- to brass tacks, it shouldn't be too hard to write a character uh, outside of, I mean, I'm writing dragons. I should be able to write women, you know? <laughs> they're, they're less different. Uh, and then, uh, so, like, Big Sigma, uh, Bypass Gemini, is very closely follows one male character. But by the second episode, he's teamed up with a female character who is arguably the most popular in the series. And uh, that just happened because it was more fun to write that character. And it was definitely more fun to write the, the pair of them bouncing off each other. And Free Wrench was an example where I, where I was originally going to write uh, Free Wrench was go- because I had just written one. I'd, with uh, uh, you know, I just I wanted to have another male character as the lead of that one, and then I had a fan contact me and like, hey, could you write a character that I could cosplay as? And hmm. she was a black woman, and I was like, I will make a black woman be the the the, the character in this, and that I just made the decision at that point. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I I haven't really I I don't find it. Maybe I should find it more challenging, but so far nobody's yelled at me for what I've done. So yeah, <laughs> apparently I'm capable of thinking. Uh, uh, you know. From multiple perspectives. Yeah, the, I, I run mine through, you know, some some beta readers too, just to make sure. You know, by the way, I know, you know, t- feel me yeah. out here. If I'm making any absurd comments or anything strange here, um, both of my editors <clears throat> and most of my beta readers are women, so yeah. it would be cool. uh, that. You know what? There's a good example actually of uh, uh, in the book of Deacon. First thing I wrote, I had a weird tendency to, you know, that's adult woman who's the, the main character i kept on in the narration referring to using the word girl in reference and it was just like mm. just so you're aware not really like girl boy you wouldn't be calling a, a male lead a boy and i was like right yeah oh, yeah no that's uh okay <laughs> and i was like change them all the woman i guess <laughs> so yeah. yeah like i've learned stuff along the way but in terms of the actual behavior of the characters i'm sure my editors would be like you're off the mark there joe yeah so that helps yeah absolutely um. Yeah, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed free. We should mention for anyone listening to or watching that that you can get some of Joe's first and series books for free. Um, just you know, start them out. And I'm I'm a big fan of the Perma Free Book One. I know it's kind of come and gone in uh, popularity, but I just put a couple of mine back to Perma Free for a little while. Um, I know uh, Book of Deacon has over twenty five hundred reviews on it at this point. So it's obviously working yeah. to get people into the funnel. Um, have you? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I know some some newer writers don't understand the value of the free book one, especially wide in wide distribution. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, when I first when I first uh, published, I, again nobody knew what the heck was going on. I, I think I published my first book at ten dollars because that's what other books cost. Yeah. And I quickly determined that people aren't going to buy a book with a homemade cover that's not edited for ten dollars. 
So I kept on lowering the price until I hit, you know, I think it ended up being 299, which was the sweet spot for a really long time because it was the cheapest you could make it and get the full royalty on Amazon. Yeah. And then I released the second one, and I think I made $19 in the first year. Uh, but then I heard uh, there's an author named Brian S. Pratt who uh, he made a perma-free book one. And I was like, ah, oh, I'm not selling any books anyway. I might right. as well give it a shot. And that was in 2011. And it turns out it was a really effective tactic in 2011 because mm -hmm. there were, there, like, not to get too deep into, like, inside baseball, Amazon's policies were different in terms of how you could make money off of people linking to your site, to their site off of yours. So a free book was a huge moneymaker for a blog. So there were tons of blogs who just found free books and, and listed them. So it worked fantastically, yeah. but it's a change. That's why it sort of fell out of favor is because they changed the rules on that. But it's still extremely useful. Like I have a career because of that first perma free book one. Mm -hmm. It's it's extremely useful to have a very cheap or free book one because it takes all of the risk out of somebody getting your book. Especially in a situation like uh, you know with Ku. K, if people are on Ku, then there is no risk. Like they essentially have unlimited free books. They, pen, they pay their $10, and they get all these free books. So if you're not in KU, um, having a perma-free is super-duper useful because there is an equal amount of risk. Like, they can get your book for free, too. Mm -hmm. And if they really like the book one, well, then they sell through to book two and book three. Mm -hmm. uh, anything you can do to remove uh, the obstacles to getting somebody into your series is good. So, you know, lower... That's why people do price promos to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I like perma-free because there's a few reasons. I mean... From the purely lazy standpoint, if a book is always free, you can make a statement about the book being free anywhere. You can put it in a paperback, and it will still be true in five years because it's permanently free. But also, um, I mean, there's problems with it because when a book is perma-free, like, that is your promotion. And also, if you advertise, it's automatically harder to make your money back because they're making no money on the first book. You're, you're mm -hmm. just spending money to get people a free product. But the volume is so much higher. Mm. And, you know, it, it, if your book is compelling, and my first book had a, I don't recommend this, readers don't like it, my first book had a ridiculous cliffhanger. Uh, and you get to the end of a free book with a, you know, that you're invested in the characters, and that character is on the brink of death. They're going to grudgingly buy the second book, uh, which is why I grudge, you don't want your readers to ever do anything grudgingly. Right. But, yeah, um, yeah I mean, just. Having your book free uh, is just a zero a, a zero effort way to get people to you know th there's no effort on their part and once you're in their reader and once you're in their circle then maybe they'll sit on it for a year maybe they'll sit on it for two years but eventually they're going to read it and if it's good they'll continue on even if they don't continue on if you've got a link in the back to your newsletter then you might you know sell them on the next one or the one mm -hmm. after that yeah so anything you can do to sort of get yourself onto somebody's device is i think worth doing yeah i'm a, I'm a big proponent of that myself and that, the reason why i have a career is because i had my book one free for several years um you know quarter of a million copies or something that i and then i finally put it back to uh full price for a little while a little while but I, I think i might be going back to now that i'm kind of shifting to a wide model for this year for 2021 i think i'm going you know back to the perma free situation just because it's you're new again. You're a brand new author to other. If you're coming off of KU and you're going wide onto Apple and other, these are all brand new readers to you. They don't know who you are. They they don't yep. know you've been around forever on Amazon. Um, so you have to kind of think like a newbie again and th and again just get things rolling. Um, 
but yeah, I, I think that that's a, it's a great model and, um, obviously having six books makes it really worthwhile. But I mean, I, I was giving away book one when I only had a book two. So, and it still, still worked. But I, I like, um, hearing from other people who, um, have gone that, gone that route. And I know Lindsay's a big, you know, proponent of it too. But, yeah. um, it's one of the reasons why I like listening to your guys' podcast is because you don't just bang the KU drum all the time. You have some other ways of marketing and uh, you've been around obviously for a long time. You've seen things come and go and you have uh, a very long-term mindset of your, your business model. Um, how has that effect? I know you've mentioned that you might put the new series in KU to start out. Um, like obviously you can't, you're not going to, release a brand new book and go straight to perma-free with it. But what does your marketing strategy look like for a new series in 2021? So my, uh, if you listen to the podcast, Lindsay's release method is typically that she will uh, release an entire series to, to KU over the, she writes books more quickly than I do. And she, she does rapid release where I will, even with this, where I'm going to write three books in a row, I wouldn't call it rapid release. I've done rapid release once yeah. and I kind of botched the launch. But um, yeah, so launching into KU is not a bad idea because you get you get the KU has all the benefits. You know, the, you mm-hmm. can you can do the countdown deals and all that stuff. Uh, so my my release will probably be, I might release the first book at ninety nine cents and leave it there, or I might release the first book at whatever the price will be, like whatever four ninety nine, whatever's appropriate for the length. I'll, I'll know once it's written, and then lower the price to ninety nine cents once I have a, a book for people to to go to. Mm. But uh, I'm going to want to have, a, even though it won't be perma-free, I'm going to have a very low-priced first book once I have the full series out there. And I will probably, because I will have the discounts that you can do in KU that you can't do when you're wide, I will probably do a couple of free days and, mm-hmm. and stack them like that. It's useful uh, when you're in KU uh, because rare, the books in KU never go free except for on free days. They're more mm-hmm. of an event, and mm-hmm. that's a nice thing that you can do when your book isn't permanently free. Yeah, but eventually, my my overall plan for the series would be to, like Lindsay, once I have most of the books out, well, once I have all the books out, probably, I will do a collection of either the first three books or the full series, and then at the same time that I do that, I will move to wide, so that the launch of the collection, and the and the release of all the other books will be sort of a second second launch for the full series, and give me a lot of stuff to talk about, even though half of my audience, the the Amazon half, has already seen the series. The fact that there's a collection now will be a thing that even they can sort of, you know, oh, well, I didn't pick that one up, but now there's a connect collection. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm, my plan is to release relatively rapidly, and that is to say all one after another instead of one per year. That has been a tricky thing that I've done in my yeah. life, by the way, is I had yeah. three series, and I would release one book in each series per year. So three books a year, but I, essentially annual releases, and yeah. it's hard to build momentum that way. So my goal is to not do that. So yeah. going forward, my launches are going to be hopefully books one after another. Uh, and yeah, once once the whole series, or at least an appreciable portion of it, is out, the collection is another item that you can do, and that's a higher priced item that you can then do deep discounts on in the future. So there's like plans going forward two or three years for mm-hmm. for any given series. Yeah, and then um, so you you'll write. Do you know how many books you in, have in mind for this already? There's definitely going to be at least three. I will. I will plot it so that I can have a breakpoint at three if I feel like it's not going well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the previous, 
the, the, the rapid release, I wrote three books with the intention of there being five. And I didn't continue to the fourth one because I wasn't happy with it. The phrase mm. I kept on using was, it hurt my feelings. <laughs> so like, I will probably continue that eventually, but not right now. It hurt my feelings. Yeah. So I will have three plotted out for sure. Uh, and I will probably aim for five or six. I feel like between five and eight is my happy spot for, for a series. Uh, uh, first off, if you have a if you reach book eight of a series and it still sound like gangbusters, then figure out a way to keep it going, <laughs> because uh, you've got a unicorn on your hands. So like the the point of diminishing returns usually kind of sets in around book five, six, seven. Hmm. So yeah, I'm probably not going to shoot for more than six, uh, and I will be prepared to cut it off at three if it turns out to be a complete failure. It seems like a solid strategy. Just. Um... How much of your original Panzer roots are still around? Do you feel like you plot pretty heavily now, or you still have that in you? I plot very heavily. Uh, I, I My Panzer is almost completely gone. Mm. But that being said, if, as I'm writing, I get a better idea, I, I, I will usually follow. Like, if the characters are leading me in a direction that I did not send them, I will attempt to predict where that direction is going, and if I like where it's going, then I will follow them there. Yeah. And it, it occasionally requires me to go back and rewrite my uh, my outline to match what I actually wrote, because it turns out if you forget to rewrite your outline, when you go back to write the books <laughs> of the series and you don't reread your book, you just reread your outline. Yeah, that doesn't work. Yeah, <laughs> so, I can see that being problematic. Uh, yeah. So yeah, there's still some pantser in me because I have a I have an easy time outlining plot but obviously you don't outline dialogue and since you mm -hmm. don't outline dialogue you're not really outlining character mm -hmm. and since characters are driving the story if i end up finding that oh the, the character that developed in this story is not the kind of character who do that sort of thing then i have to sort of pull the plug on what my plan was and pants from that point forward that's a really good point and people lose sight of that sometimes of how character is shown on the page and it's shown through what a character does and what a character says not yeah. what a character is supposed to do uh per the author it yeah. really hurts the story i feel when you're like no you will do what i told you to do <laughs> like i feel like you can tell mm -hmm. when a character makes an out of character decision in order to keep the plot on track and obviously you don't want your plot to go off track, so there's got to be a happy medium. So I think that's one of the reasons why having started as a pantser is useful, because I have a little bit of that improvisational story writing. I can hopefully find a way to lead myself back to the intended ending, especially if I plotted out multiple books, because then I have to throw away all of my ideas for the future if I go too far off track. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these are the problems that people don't realize they get into until they're halfway through the book. And they yeah. realize what they've created, and they can't go. I mean, I've rewritten the first five chapters of books like several times, just to go back. And be, all right, wait, wait, wait. I got to go back in the beginning and fix this thing, and then come back and sort of make it all work. Um, yeah, I, I think that's that's really good advice for people, though. It's actually surprising to me, and the number of times it's happened where a book got derailed or I had a better idea. It's amazing to me how little you really like it when, if you go through and read it it's amazing how little you really have to change stuff to make things fit. Like I, I have found some sweeping changes that I've written. I have been able to seam up with what I'd already written with like as little as three or four paragraphs. Like it's just, Oh, add in a scene halfway through the third chapter that, that lampshades what's about to happen. This foreshadows what's about to happen. 
and then you know add in a paragraph at the end of chapter seven where that sort of comes to light and all of a sudden this person's idea and that person's reaction and the presence of this person in the scene they all work and mm. it's like well, that's four paragraphs and it completely changed the plot of the, of the book so I, I, I oh that's one of the reasons it sort of makes me feel okay about making a change is because i'm confident i can go back and make it work without a full rewrite yeah, and that's a good skill to have. It's just under, understanding the bones of the story and what needs to move to make it make sense. And, or sometimes the reader can just be satisfied with just, as long as you have a, a callback to it, you know, like come back to it later and, and have, make something resonate so that it feels intentional. Um, there's so much of a, the way we read stories is the, we're wired that way. We want to feel like the end is connected to the beginning and that we follow this consistent thread the entire way through. Even if yeah. that's somewhat of an illusion sometimes. Yeah, and that's something that I think a lot of people who, who, who are pantsers, I don't, a lot of people is, is, is not kind. I'll say mm. some people who are pantsers, uh, they think you write the book from beginning to end and then give it to an editor. Like, right. I would hope that there's always a, going back to the beginning and making sure that stuff makes sense. I don't know that there's ever a book I've written from beginning to end that I didn't go back and add at least some stuff at the beginning to fit you know the ideas. Mm -hmm. Like a fully pantsed book needs a revision it needs more mm. revision than an outline book because you know you, you mm. didn't know at the beginning what was going to be happening at the end mm -hmm. um if you're now that you've i mean you've put out 30 books now at this point if you've got someone else just starting out in 2021 um what's some of the advice that you give now um all right so i like when it comes to writing the book, everyone talks about writing to market, and it's mm -hmm. you, you. You need a market. You can't not have a market. Uh, but don't write a book that you wouldn't write. Like the advice that we often give on the podcast is, figure out which market is closest to what you want to write, mm -hmm. and maybe you can adjust what you're writing to fit that market better. But uh, of the book that you are passionate about is always going to have better. It's just going to be, unless you are an incredibly gifted writer, or if you're, you've been a ghost writer for six years and, and you're familiar with matching tone and, and hitting genre, write the book that you're excited about and then figure out how to sell it afterward. Yeah. Um, because a book with a huge market is not a guaranteed seller. You're, a, a big market is also a crowded market. And mm -hmm. so. You know, you're going to have to stand out in some way, and you're not going to stand out by writing a book that you didn't particularly enjoy writing. So, write the book you want to write. You'll have a better time. It'll be a better book. And then, when it comes to uh, when it comes, to, like I will always recommend outlining. Now, you don't have to, but I, I feel like a book that's been outlined uh, beforehand is going to flow faster. Um, people say you have to write every day. Uh, you don't have to write every day. You do have to finish a book, but you don't have to write every day. Don't, don't. Mm. But also, like contrary, I've often been concerned. It's this is my job. I have quotas, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm always sort of concerned that when I'm grinding to hit my quota, that it will feel like I'm grinding to hit my quota. And then when I go back and do the revision, I couldn't tell you the scenes that I was having a hard time writing versus the scenes that were flowing. Right. Like, when it comes to the end, when it's all said and done, the words are the words. So don't stress out too much about that sort of thing. And then when it comes to the release, uh, the biggest advice I'll have is um, definitely get an edit. If you only have money for one thing, get an edit. Mm -hmm. uh, you, it's hard to get a good score when you got a bad, bad typos. Um, 
And then after that, if you've got money for a cover, you can get a really nice cover for not a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but your book's got to look good. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I will. I, I recommend that people start off with KU. I am. I I'm a wide author. I more than half of my audience is in other places than Amazon because I started off everywhere. Mm-hmm. But if you're starting off, like you don't have a book out there yet. Amazon just gives you a lot more tools to work with if you're exclusive with them. So I I, I would recommend you start off exclusive, but experiment with wide later. Uh, mm-hmm. when, you know, if you didn't have success with KU, or if KU started off real good but then the started to taper off, well, okay, you've got the you've got the juice out of that lemon. Now it's time to try out all the other storefronts, and it's not going to be an explosion. But on the other hand, you are now a known author. You're not. Like, if you start on KU and you have any level of success, when you go wide, your name is somewhere. People will search mm-hmm. for your name and find you. Mm-hmm. So uh, having some sort of history is useful, and KU tends to be an easier start. So I would say start at KU. Where's, how do you grow your audience or your connection to your audience? What's the best way you're connecting with your readers? Uh, all right. So, I mean, social media is a weird thing. Like, I used to, my opinion used to be you should be everywhere that your readers are. Uh, and I have since determined that you can't be everywhere your readers are, first mm-hmm. off. Um, there's too many places to be. Yeah. And second, you some people just aren't good fit for, for things like that. But I like to have at least one social media uh, platform that I'm active on. In my case, it's Twitter. Which, by the way, not a great place for selling books. But an excellent <laughs> place for talking to folks. Right, yeah. Uh, it's also a horrifying place to spend any amount of time. So, yeah. <laughs> like, grow yourself some calluses. But um, I, having a way for your fans to talk to you. And uh, also a newsletter. Uh, the most personal connection you're going to have with your fans is via a newsletter. Um, because you're right into their mailbox. You're, you're in and amongst, ideally, once they've started reading it, you're in and amongst the you know, emails from their family. Mm-hmm. But and if you want to have a connection with your, with your reader... It shouldn't all be about selling them something. You need to let them know who you are. Mm-hmm. And I, most of my my uh, my newsletter stuff is about book releases because my newsletter my newsletter was originally with the promise I'm only going to contact you when I have a new release, so I'm not going to be spam. Mm-hmm. But an equally and some would say more successful way of handling a newsletter is just once a month. Hey, here's what's going on in my life. Yeah. And you know. You don't need to necessarily answer every email that somebody sends you, but you need to be a person, not just a guy waving a book saying, you know, asking people to buy it. Mm-hmm. So uh, having a way that people can contact you is useful. And even if you're an introvert, email is fantastic for introverts because you can sit there and think about it for an hour. Uh, and and then, yeah, just you don't even have to be like, you don't have to be a public person. You don't have to like show, tell people what you had for lunch every day. But just sort of give them an idea what your interests are and, and, and try to have a conversation. I have a Facebook fan page, and if you end a post with a question, <laughs> it starts a conversation. And once a conversation is going, everybody has a better time. Yeah. So just, yeah, just have one or two ways in which people can contact you if they want to. And wherever you are visible, try to be genuine and mm-hmm. let them know what kind of a person you are. And I, I think everything connects to genre. So I think that writing, your point about writing what you really want to write anyway is going to be so much easier when that's already part of your personality. It's already something that you love because the, the part of you that has to stand next to your book and be likable too and be authentic 
with this product is going to be so much easier if it's legitimately something that you like, not just something that you're writing as a money, you know, a market, you know, kind of money grab. Yeah, you'll um, be able to talk about the associated, you know, <laughs> pop culture because yeah. you like the pop culture, you know, and like yeah. you're not you're not necessarily competing with all this stuff, but you're certainly, you know, part of, part of the, the, you know, the content that people are consuming. So it's kind of useful if you happen to be really enthusiastic about that stuff. And if mm-hmm. somebody compares your book to something that's on, you know, that, that you know about like, Oh, you suddenly feel number one, an immediate connection because the two of you feel the same about something. Yeah. And also like you can start talking to them like, Oh, actually that was an inspiration for this. Or, you know what? I really like that character. And now yeah. you think about it. Well, I think yeah. about my, my Facebook group, but the majority of the time is spent about talking about things that are nothing to do with my books. Like bulk of the conversation is there about is, you know, topics uh, that are tangentially related to genres that it might be, you know, it's a time travel, for example, but nothing to do with what I particularly write. I have not very little to do with it, which I love. It's so great to have a community that will run and operate without you in it. And you can just come in and enjoy it and just hang out with people that you would like to hang out with anyway. That's the best yeah. kind of group to have. Yeah. That's one of the great things about like a Facebook fan page or like, you know, if you had a forum in the old days, like I had a forum on my website for a while, but uh, it wasn't active enough to keep it up. But like any situation where people can talk to each other and you're a part of that community, people, authors have discords now. I have one for mm-hmm. my Patreon. And it's another thing where you just have a, a a place where conversations can happen that you are a part of as opposed mm-hmm. to you standing in front of somebody just spraying words at them. Right. I think it, 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 it literally builds a community and that's just automatically better in my head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm for it too. So where's the best place for, for listeners and readers to connect with you? Uh, you can find me on any of the social media that I'm on. I'm usually J-R-L-A-L-L-O uh, so that, you know, Okay. At JR, you know, that's me on Twitter. That's me on a bunch of other places. That I can't even remember all of them. Not on Instagram, but don't bother following me on Instagram. <laughs> like, don't use it. <laughs> on Instagram, I'm Joseph underscore Lalo. Okay. Uh, but I, you know, there are people who very effectively use Instagram for books, and yeah. I'm, I don't. Uh, you can find me at the the book of De- uh, sorry bookofdeacon.com. Uh, that's my main author site. I didn't get the one with my name on it because, again, didn't know what I was doing in 2010. <laughs> and uh, I'm also at Six Figure Authors with a number six for the for the podcast. And uh, if you at all want to know about selling books, I would recommend that you listen to our podcast and pay attention to what Lindsay and Andrea are saying. Uh, I I've clearly been able to make a living at this, but Andrea and Lindsay really are more guru than I am when it comes to this sort of thing. I think you're underselling yourself, but yeah, I've been listening to you for a long time. You've said a lot of good things on that show, so thank you. Um, yeah, definitely fantastic podcast. Like I said, if you ha- aren't already listening to Six Figure Author Podcast, I give it two thumbs up myself. I listen every week, so I, I don't miss it. So um, yeah, a great show. Um, thank you. Joe, thank you so much for taking some time out of your night to come and hang out with us. I really appreciate you being here. It's always you know, fantastic to talk to you and hear from you. Uh, I hope we can do it again sometime again soon in the future. Thank you. All right. Thank you, everyone, for watching and for listening. And we'll be back again next week with another episode. So long.